2: check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium, and of course, my new publishing company called Zivi Books. And now, back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids.
0: Hi! Hi! Hello!
2: Enjoy the show. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you all had a great break. I wanted to let you know about something that I've been talking a lot about on social media at Zivi Owens, which is the hashtag 22 in 22 challenge. We are... At Zibby Books, we are encouraging everybody, like all of you, to visit 22 bookstores in 2022. And we're going to provide a whole series of incentives for every five visits, and you'll be entered to win a $500 shopping spree, and you'll get fun things like bookmarks and all the rest. Plus, you'll be part of a great community of people all helping support bookstores, authors, and more. We're really, really excited about it. If you wanna join, sign up. You just go to 22in22.net. That's 22in22.net and click I'm in and put your information. And then every time you go to a bookstore, you just quickly go back on the site and click log a bookstore visit. And then we'll be keeping track and we'll be following up with all of your different achievements and awards and everything. So please sign up, spread the word, 22 and 22, get your friends to join and start visiting bookstores, and it'll be really fun and exciting. So, here's to a wonderful 2022. I'm so excited that you're listening to my podcast and doing all the fun things that I have been trying to bring into the world. So, here we go 2022 22 and 22. I'm so excited to be releasing my episode with Katie Couric, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Going There. This is from my conversation with Katie, which I did live at the Temple Emanuel Striker Center in front of a full audience. And there's a little video of the whole event on my Instagram feed at Zibbie Owens. So you can see behind the scenes before and after and during the event. Thank you to the Striker Center for hosting us. I also write for Katie Couric and her weekly, well, I write weekly for her daily newsletter called Wake Up Call. So if you haven't subscribed to that, please do so. Not only for my great little, book recommendations each month, but for the fabulous things she often recommends and the news she covers and all of that. Her book going there was really amazing. Anyway, Katie is the founder of Katie Kirk Media. She's an award-winning journalist, best-selling author, documentary filmmaker of Fed Up, Gender Revolution, and America Inside Out. As you probably all know, Katie hosted the Today Show, CBS Evening News, and was a special correspondent for ABC News and global anchor for Yahoo News. She's also a cancer advocate, a coffee lover, and a full-time New Yorker. I really hope you enjoy our episode, that you love going there, and that you subscribe to Wake Up Call and read my weekly articles for her. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming tonight. Hi, Katie.
1: Hi, Sivvy. Hi, everyone.
2: And thanks to everybody who's watching virtually. We have to talk right into our microphones for the virtual thing, so don't think that we're doing anything too odd or whatever.
1: <laughs> right. Yes. We have to really speak loudly. Hi, everyone. I like the sound of my voice in this mic. You sound great. <laughs> Thank you. Just
2: we're like just going to take the mics with us. we <laughs> just going to ring around all night. Well, it's so exciting to get to talk to you about your book, Going There. So we are going to go there tonight a little bit. I really wanted to know, why did you decide to go there? Why did you decide to write this book? And why now, especially at this point in your life?
1: Well, if not now, when? I'm 64. I'll be 65 on January 7th. Impressive, whoever knew that. And I had, you know, I've done a lot in the news industry. I've worked at every network except for Fox. Uh, (laughs) Know your audience, right? (laughs) And I'd worked at Yahoo. I had done a syndicated talk show for a couple of years, worked at Yahoo because I saw how the landscape was changing. And then in 2018, my husband and I decided to start a media company because we saw how the, the landscape was was so fragmented and digital content was becoming more and more important. Television news was declining. And that was the case even when I went to CVS. So I had this moment in my life, Zibby, where I had much more freedom. I wasn't beholden to any corporation or any boss. I was really happy not to work for the man any w- more, but work for myself. Well, I do work for my husband, kind of, but he's the CEO. And I just decided... I've had I've been the beneficiary and the lucky recipient of this extraordinary life that I never anticipated in a million years. It's been full of high points beyond my wildest uh, expectations and of course some really low points having lost both my husband and sister to cancer and I have had this incredible ride and I thought why not write about it, not only as a gift to my daughters, but also I thought there might be some life lessons in those pages about persistence, about resilience, about, you know, kind of getting kicked and getting back up and not taking no for an answer. And I I actually love to write. And I, I enjoy writing, I love words and language, I always have. So, for all of those reasons, I thought this would be a good time for me to put pen to paper or fingertip to iPad uh, keyboard and and start to write about my my life and it was It was really fun and you know really hard in places but I love doing it. I know it probably sounds conceited, but I really love my book. And I, you know, once in a while I'll read it and John's like, are you reading your book again? I'm like, yeah, I really like it. And so, but also a gift for my my daughters. You know, they they were six and two when my husband died and they never got to know him. And so I wanted him to come alive in a way in this book. And anyway, I really enjoyed it. And, and I thought, While I still remember, I better write it down.
2: (laughs) It's great because you have both the news side of your whole life and you track that in great detail. And that was very interesting, especially being a woman and, and changing and pivoting so many times and doing all these different things. But you also track your whole private life, which maybe this is creepy of me, I found really interesting. And I was like, that's on.
1: super creepy. It is. I'm kidding.
2: I'm, I'm I'm very kidding. It's not creepy. I wrote about it. So I wait outside I will... her apartment every night and just look at <laughs> her windows. No, And it, I was especially struck by your relationship with your dad because it seemed really meaningful. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. He was sort of the, the bookends, if you will, of this book with your epilogue to him at the end and all the ways where there are all these moments where you look to him and sort of for his approval. So just tell me about the influence of him in your life.
1: Well, I think my dad was a journalist. He was, he grew up in a small town called Dublin, Georgia. He went to Mercer in Macon, Georgia, and he was the editor-in-chief of his college newspaper and then went on to work for the Macon Telegraph and the Atlanta Constitution. And later, you worked for United Press, both in Tallahassee. I think he was the bureau chief in Florida. And then moved with with our family before I was born to the Washington, D.C. area. And, you know, I think my dad was an extremely erudite person. He could talk fluently about just about any topic from the Spanish-American War to F Scott Fitzgerald and you know I wish I had those moments back because at the dinner table my dad would start to pontificate about something and I would always go shh like a bratty kid I'm I was the youngest and I just so regret that I didn't kind of really that I wasn't more of a sponge for everything he had to t- teach me. Having said that, he was just extremely influential. We had to bring a new word to the dinner table every night. There were four of us. And he just encouraged me. I think he saw that I was a good writer. I was a procrastinator. All these traits I think he's, he saw as as traits that would really work in in news because I had to work under deadline and have to, and I, I was also extremely outgoing as a kid. I never met a stranger. I'd go up to, shocked, shocked, I know, I know it's a shock, but I would go up to like kids at football games when I was like 10. My sisters were both cheerleaders and I was too, of course, please. But anyway, and I'd say, you're Barbara McLaughlin, aren't you? And, the girl would say, yeah, how did you know that I saw your picture in my sister's yearbook? Like I was that weird, <laughs> creepy kid. So I think my dad saw all these traits and and just really encouraged me to go into journalism. And while I was in journalism, he was just my North Star. I could always talk to him about interviews I did and you know, ask him, did I go was I too heavy handed when I interviewed David Duke? And we would talk after the Today Show and he would give me his two cents once I had to do a condom demonstration and he said, That was too far. You know, you went too far, Katie, on that. But it was the AIDS epidemic and we were trying to be educational. Anyway, so you know, he just he just you know, I always think of my dad was was my well, you know, and I was very close to my mom too but he was sort of my heart and my, well, I don't know. He was my soul and my mom was my heart, but they were both incredibly influential. My mom was a very creative person. She used to be a cartographer for Rand McNally and she did layout for Coronet Magazine, which was, I believe, the precursor to Esquire. And they met in Chicago when my dad was in the Navy. And, you know, they were just incredible parents. They, really emphasized the importance of education they were very encouraging without pushy be, being too pushy they weren't helicoptery you know they didn't they gave us all our freedom but the four kids ended up being you know i think pretty accomplished people. My sister Emily, before she died of pancreatic cancer, was running for lieutenant governor with Mark Warner in Virginia. She was a real rising star in the Democratic Party. My sister Kiki, Clara, but I call her Kiki, is a landscape architect. My brother Johnny is a CFO of a company. So I feel like whatever they did, they... I don't know. They, I think, emphasized the right things and gave us room to make mistakes, but they always expected us to be leaders and to excel academically. I was sort of the goof-off, but my sisters were, they were all really smart and accomplished, so. And my mom was Jewish. Hello, can we not talk about that? (laughs) Yes. So, hello, I'm a member of the tribe. I couldn't light the candles, but I'm learning. But that's something in the book that's interesting that I talk about, the fact that, you know, and I've talked to my relatives who are Southern Jews in Birmingham, Alabama. My mom's family settled in Alex City, Alabama, and they had a department store and then later in Atlanta. And, you know, I write a lot about that because my mom was never very open about her Judaism, I wish she had been. But I think growing up in Virginia, and in the era when she grew up, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and I'm not sure if that was something that she uh, agreed with my paternal grandmother, who was quite religious, and but I, i'm I'm so proud of my my Jewish heritage now, and always have been. But I didn't realize it until I was ten years old and saw a menorah in my uncle's bookcase. And I was like, <gasps> All I could think of was that Tom Lair song. About National Brotherhood Week, and if you're a certain age, you might remember that he wrote a song. It was all a satirical show on Sunday nights, and I was way too young to be watching it. But he wrote a song called "The Protestants Hate National Brotherhood Week," and it's the Protestants hate the Catholics, the Catholics hate the Protestants, and everybody hates the Jews. And that's all I could remember. And when I saw that menorah, I was like, "Oh my God!" But you know, I wish that I wish she hadn't felt like she had to be quiet about her, her faith, but they were German Jews and assimilation was so important. And I talked to my cousin, Henry, who I mentioned is, uh, lives in Birmingham. And I said, why do you think my mom was so secretive about that? And he said, you know, we were citizens first and Jews second. It was an important part of our identity, and they closed the store on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but he said it wasn't first and foremost because we wanted to assimilate, and so maybe that was, had something to do with it, but that was an interesting thing to explore in the book for me.
2: I think you might be able to get a bat mitzvah date in like 2026. (laughs) Let me know. Okay. Find my daughter.
1: (laughs) Well, my daughters went to camp, and their last name is Monahan, and most of the girls at their camp were Jewish. So Carrie would come home and say, I want to have a not mitzvah. because she felt left out.
2: You know, the thing about your mom that was so moving, you wrote really beautifully about both your parents at the end of their lives and how you sort of came to terms with that. But after your mother died, when you called up the newspaper and said, okay, I need you to write an obituary for my mom. And they said, okay, well, tell tell us about her. And you were like, well, she was this amazing homemaker and this and that and the other thing. And there was silence on the other line. And you're like... Why? Why does that not get written up? Why is that any less than other people's accomplishments? And yet, here you are as a woman and a mother doing all these other things, and yet the, so it's it seems imbalanced in a way. So tell me about that. Well,
1: you know, when my dad was sick, he had Parkinson's, and my brother Johnny and I were at the hospital, and, you know, he was just not getting better. He had sundowners and was sort of getting, sort of hallucinating a little bit, and I walked into the hallway and I was just crushed. I bring my little speaker and play Benny Goodman and Frank Sinatra and all these things. And, you know, it was just devastating for me to to lose my dad and my mom and everyone else I've lost. But I said to my brother, Johnny, you know, we probably should write dad's obituary. And he said, oh, Katie, don't worry, he's already written it, <laughs> which was so thoughtful of him in a way. Well, you know, I think because of his journalism background, you know, he put something together and I called the reporter at the Washington Post and that was the paper my parents and I grew up on and and my dad would read at the kitchen table every morning and I talked to the the reporter. He was so nice and I said, you know, I'd like to, to submit or can you help me with this obituary and he was perfectly nice and You know, I didn't want it to be like my dad because I, you know, I'm one of four kids. And whenever somebody would say, are you Katie Couric's father? Like I remember at the garage, someone asked him that, or maybe it was the pharmacist. And he said, no, uh, actually, she's my daughter. (laughs) And so we put this obituary and there's a really nice picture of my dad from the Navy. And so when my mom died, I called and said, you know asked for the same guy he who was so nice and he said well tell tell me about her and i was like well she you know she was a really good artist she volunteered at planned parenthood she worked in the gift department of lord and taylor when i was older and she just raised four incredible kids and it was like silence and it made me realize that that Parenting is just still so undervalued in our culture. But there's so many people, honestly, who I think deserve obituaries. When I read the New York Times and the notices, I that's weird when you start reading the obituaries, especially when you see their ages and you start freaking out and you're like, Holy shit. Am I allowed to say that and here? Anyway, so I think I think that that we just don't celebrate It made me realize, because, you know, I've worked my whole life, Sibby, and I know there's sometimes tension between parents, moms especially, who decide to stay home and raise their children, and women who are, you know, quote unquote, doing it all as if. And it just made me really understand and appreciate everybody making the choices that are right for them and how much, how grateful I was to my mom.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy, online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. So nice. You wrote a lot about this whole tension of being a mom and being a working mom when you were there, the events that you missed, how you felt about that. In fact, you even said when you found out you were pregnant the first time, you were like not happy about it. I don't know if I, I feel bad cursing. You can. Yeah, you don't cur- Don't curse. Okay. It's okay. okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I think I said something, some expletive. Right, yeah. Well, I was, I, the trajectory of my career, my career was just starting to take off. I had, it was clear that I was sort of being groomed to take over the Today Show as after this sort of Jane Pauley, Deborah Norville debacle that was very poorly handled by the management. They sort of pushed Jane out at thirty one, thirty nine, 39, thinking she was too old, you know, or losing younger viewers, which was ludicrous. And so it was not ideal timing. But of course, now in hindsight, and I remember seeing that t shirt when I was in my 20s that said, Oh my God, I forgot to have children. And I didn't want that to be me. You know, I, I really wanted to have a family too. So it turns out I was really so lucky because I had Jay and I had Ellie, and then four and a half years later, had Carrie. And, you know, Jay was diagnosed with colon cancer at 41, so I'm just so grateful that there were two happy accidents who became my incredible daughters, so I feel very blessed.
2: I feel like I know your daughter after all your wedding pictures. I feel like I was there, which is amazing. You know, another thing you did in your memoir that I don't see that often is all of the the space you gave to your childcare providers and the relationships you had and how you know there was one like pretty contentious relationship there where one of them kind of went off the rails which was it wasn't
1: I, I wouldn't call it contentious i would call it batshit crazy
2: okay yeah i said you I, can I had a <laughs> i
1: had a crazy crazy nanny and it was scary and I mean, it's it. The book. It, it's funny in the book. I give her an assumed name, which I shouldn't have, because she came out and talked to the tabloids after the book came out. Anyway, but she just had had severe emotional problems, and the fact that an agency placed her with us, and this was my first child. I was in the middle of this incredible work experience, getting this job on the Today Show when I was four or five months pregnant, and she was older, and Jay wanted thought it would be good to have an older person, more experienced, and he was living in Washington, working at a law firm, and so he thought that that someone experienced would be great, but it was it was a really weird situation because she kind of grew her roots very subtly into our home, and I think, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I think she had borderline personality disorder, and she, uh, after a few few weeks, she wanted me to hug her before she went to bed. <laughs> And I did, (laughs) which is so screwed up, but, but she didn't have a family, you know, the first, I remember going to the grocery store with her when I was on maternity leave and, you know, I, I, by the way, I also, it was, it's such a strange relationship you have with your child's caregiver and I always want to be respectful and really value that person and compensate them well. And I remember her saying, I don't want to go away on the weekends. I want to feel like I'm a part of a family. And I was like, you can be a part of our family instead of like mayday, mayday, mayday. Something may be wrong here. And so, yeah, she, and it was just the two of us and Ellie. And I was like, well, she's alone. She has no friends. She doesn't really have a family. What's the harm of giving her a hug before she goes to bed? Anyway, I have boundary issues anyway, so this one was just severe, and she worked for us for three years, and we finally had to fire her, and then she went crazy. She called the tabloid. She sent pictures of me in a bathing suit to, like, Tom Brokaw and Tim Russert. Like, aren't I cute? Love, Katie. I was like, what? And (laughs) oh my God, it was just so crazy. But, you know, it's amazing how many women have these stories of, because it's such a bizarre relationship. It's so intimate. You know, they're around when you're getting out of the shower and, and so important because they're taking care of the most important thing in your life. And yet you have to have these barriers and it's really hard. But later, I was very lucky, and I write a lot about Lori Beth, who who was truly a co-parent for me after Jay died. And <laughs> when she came for the interview, I, had, I we, we had done a segment on falls on the Today Show, and I had this long thing of blonde hair, and I decided I would keep it on just because I thought it was so fun and funny. And she thought that I was... Incognito, and she couldn't understand why I was saying hi to everyone, and she was very confused by the whole thing. <laughs> but she was wonderful, and I feel so indebted to her. And I, I write about how she taught Carrie, I think, when she was eight, to recite My Life is Like a Loaded Gun by Emily Dickinson at the dinner table. And as I said, My Little Pony, it wasn't. Yeah. But she was just really smart and really caring, and I feel Hi, Diana. I just feel really, really blessed that I had her in my life, and the girls love her like another mother.
2: (laughs) You wrote a lot about your dating life in the book, including when you were dating Jay beforehand. And one of my favorite parts, which I like read out loud to my kids because I thought it was so funny, is you had this one moment with Jay when you said, I guess you were looking at his hair, it looked like it was thinning a little bit, and you said, hey, do you think you're going to be bald when you get older? And he's like, I don't know, do you think you're going to be fat and ugly?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned not to bring up his hair ever again. He had like this mirror in this hand mirror that he kind of tucked into our stack of towels. And I was like, I know what he's doing with that. He's like checking it out (laughs) in the morning, but he was very sensitive. You know, he took a lot of pride in his his appearance and was a very natty dresser. And obviously I I touched a nerve, but he was very (laughs) funny. And like when I called him, I asked him out on our first date after I'd met him at a party. And I said... I thought you were going to call me because I had given him my cheesy little news four card, and he'd given me his nice Williamson Conley card that was much more elegant than mine. And I said, "I thought you were going to call me." He said, "Well, I guess I didn't have to." (laughs)
2: I was like, "Wow, he's cocky." But when you married John Mulner, who's here tonight, he also was cracking me up. I was like, "This is great. I just have to hang out with all the people that Katie dates." Like, this is
1: John is really, really funny. Where are you, Mulner? Well,
2: he's a. Hi.
1: <laughs> anyway, yeah.
2: And he John, said, uh, "John's
1: great. You, I'm so lucky."
2: When you got married, I guess right before you were you right before the ceremony, he said something like, "Well, I'm the luckiest guy on Amy's lane. Well, this side of Amy's lane."
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's funny. He's very witty and has a great sense of humor. And I feel really lucky that I found a partner, you know, I, I'm six years older than he is. I'm a cougar. And I feel really lucky that, that I found a life partner after losing Jay. It took a lot of, of, of dates in between and boyfriends and kind of unsuccessful relationships. But finally I found Mulner. and, you know, I always give people advice that they have to be intentional. When I did my book tour, Zibi, a you know, I went to 10 cities, and I tried to give these life lessons, and one of them was to be intentional, and I was very, very adamant about finding someone. I, I wanted to get remarried. I'm a pretty traditional person, and my friend Molly, who I used to go to flywheel spinning when I was into that for a nanosecond, said her husband is the, a South African doctor and I said hey Molly do you know any does Dave know any doctors I think I'd like to go out with a doctor because I've learned so much about cancer research and I really enjoy the science part of it and I haven't really dated that many doctors except for that weird plastic surgeon which we'll talk about later but anyway so so she said no we don't know any doctors but we do know this banker named John Molner.' so every time I saw Molly I'd be like Molly what happened to the Molner guy he's never called called me so finally he did and we had a great first date but You know, I tell people, in fact, I have a whole little section in my newsletter today with advice (laughs) on dating that you just have to really, it's a numbers game. You got to cycle through them. Don't ever meet for dinner because then you're trapped for a couple of hours. And those are two hours of your life you'll never get back. So always meet for wine or coffee in a public place because you want to be safe. And really ask all your friends and just just really kind of be relentless about it. And, you know, if that's something you want in your life, and by the way, you don't necessarily have to want it, and that's fine too. But, you know, you just have to to really focus on it as if you're looking for a job. That's my attitude. And that always worked for me, even though my relationships weren't always that successful.
2: I also married someone six years younger who was very funny and witty, so we'll have to compare notes on these second marriages.
1: (laughs) A sense of humor is so critical, I think, especially now in the world we live in, so bleak and depressing at times and so much rancor and acrimony. I think, you know, you have to have somebody who makes you laugh, I think. That's really important.
2: I totally agree. In terms of your work life, just one thing I found really interesting and which you sort of alluded to earlier is how fragmented the news industry is, but also how you grew up in the in the today show world where you could have one minute talking to the president and the next minute you could be doing something about, I don't know, paper towels or something. Or talking to Miss Piggy. Teletubbies or, yeah, or I don't know yeah. what and how you've been in other endeavors, people try to push you into certain things—the daytime TV role, and that you had to be a certain way—and then the very serious CBS News role—and and how it's so tricky to just sort of find all the parts of a person in a particular job. And that's why your new Katie Couric Media is like so great, and I love your newsletter because you have all of that, all of that in there. But why is that so hard to find? Why it just why do people think that it has to be so narrow? Well,
1: I think I think there's a certain expectation for news people, especially television news people. You know, they used to say when I went to the CBS evening news that I lacked gravitas, which I always say is Latin for testicles. <laughs> and and I think there it's it's very hard, I think, to still kind of see women in positions of power. I think people are suspicious of women as, as powerful figures, as authority figures. And I think there's so much cultural conditioning still, at least for people of my generation, to, to as I said, be suspicious of someone who is both feminine and authoritative, who, ha- who can have fun and have a outgoing fun personality but also have intellectual depth, and, you know, the kind of curiosity and intelligence that being a, a good journalist requires. So I think that's changing a bit. But I, I just think that, that we sort of pigeonhole people. And that's, I think, because I have a big personality and I'm very kind of fun-loving. But I also have an extremely serious side. And I think it's, it's, it's just hard for people to see Individuals in in all their multi dimensional splendor, you know they they want want to pigeonhole you and put you in a in a category. So I think that was one of the things. And with with my new company and John's our new company, I can do interviews with someone about the damn Omicron or however you say it variant. How upsetting is that? Keep keeping our fingers and toes crossed on that and. You know, but I can also do, you know, do a fun interview. I can do an IG live with Leslie Jordan or, you know, with Ina Garten when she's making a giant Cosmo during the pandemic. So I can, I can kind of satisfy all different sides of myself and not and and just do things that I'm interested in. But I wanted to ask you, Zibby, because you know, Zibby is really doing incredible things with her company, and you're really one of the things I realized in writing this book is publishing is an industry that is ripe for disruption. And because I think they've been doing it sort of the same way for decades, if not centuries. So I wanted to have you, for the people who aren't familiar with the kind of things you're doing with your company, explain how you're approaching this changing media and changing publishing landscape.
2: Yes, I recently started Zivi Books, which is a new publishing company, and we're doing 12 books a year of fiction and memoir, telling it like it is. And one of the reasons why is because on my podcast, moms don't have time to read books. I've interviewed almost 900 people, wow. and I've heard the same things over and over again about all the issues in publishing. And what? And finally, I was think I've been thinking of doing this for over a year. I just kept thinking, well, how is it going to change? It's impossible. Some of the, the companies are so big and so entrenched in the ways they're doing things. And with my own books, and I, I have I've have books coming out with three different publishers, or that have come out, I kept hearing, like, no, well, we don't do it this way. And I'm like, well, let's try this. No, we can't do it that way. And I don't like that. I'm like, why not? I don't understand. Like, how are you going to find a book if it's stored in the top shelf when there's one copy, and then they sell out, and they won't reorder? And it's like, well, of course you're going if to... You, if you sold it, why... Anyway... I'll stop. But I had a lot of frustrations, and I felt like there was a whole new way to do it, and why not try? And I kept waiting, and then I was like, well maybe I'm the person who's supposed to do this. Why not me? What if I try it? So I partnered with Lee Newman, who is in the publishing, has been in the publishing world forever. She used to be at Oprah and started Catapult Books. So someone knew what they were doing a little bit, but she, you know, she keeps saying, well, this is how how it's done in publishing. And every day I'm like, well, let's not do it that way then. (laughs) Like, let's try it a different way. So we're shaking things up from distribution, how we're getting the word out. We're starting with this effort we just launched called Hash. Tag 22 and 22, where we're encouraging. And you all should sign up people to, to go to bookstores 22 times in the year 2022. And I'll give out these like little prizes and badges and I'm going to make it like a fun thing. Did we get a sticker book? You did. You're going to get a sticker. You're going to get a badge. You're going to get all sorts of stuff. Somebody said, well, thank God this is a lot better than a weight loss challenge for 2022. And so we're, we're changing it up we're changing out. we're doing profit sharing among all our authors we're going to have a class of authors all of the things we're doing counter some issue that we've seen and we're starting book ambassadors all around the country to lift up the authors and so are you
1: looking to discover new authors or are you so that's part of it but also you're celebrating published authors too and I know that you have a, a new book an anthology of essays written by some really impressive authors who we're going to be meeting Later yes, tonight,
2: they're coming up soon. I've, I have two anthologies written by people who have all been on my podcast because they are amazing authors and I love their books. And 11 of them are here tonight and we're going to hear from them very soon. But yes, I couldn't get enough. When I do my podcast, they're about 30 minutes long and I always want to know more. So I thought this would be a good way to get original content from some amazing writers. And that's how the anthologies came to be.
1: And it's so great because it's really hard to get attention for books it's really challenging and so for you to be able to bring attention and that's what we're trying to do too at my company and and make sure that some of these writers, that people know about them, and especially first-time authors. So I think it's wonderful what you're doing. And by the way, Zippy's a real smarty pants. She's being modest, but, you know, she went to Yale and Harvard Business School, and so she knows what she's doing. So don't act all like, I had to get someone who knew what they were doing.
2: I meant I hadn't been in publishing. <laughs> I-, I you're,
1: you're a good businesswoman, so own you. it, sister.
2: Okay, great. <laughs> Biley. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Katie, and to everybody and to thank everybody you, for watching. Everyone. Thank okay. you. Thanks, Sivvy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.